Hey, welcome once again, everybody, to the Toward Wholeness Podcast. This is where our desire is to give you tools that you can use so that you can move toward wholeness in spirit and soul and body. My guest today is Stephen Ginsberg. I'll share with you in just a minute how we met. But what we're talking about today is really, really important because, as you know, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul's prayer is that all of us would move toward wholeness And then Paul is very specific. He talks about three things, spirit, soul, and body. One of the things that is significant, I believe, is that this spirit, soul, body trichotomy should never really be divided up. We are, all of us, the ecosystem of spirit, soul, and body. We need spiritual transformation. We need Christ in our lives. And then we need our soul to begin to believe that what God says about us is true so that our mind, will, and emotions are transformed. And then that will begin to actually change our life and the body. It'll change our sleep patterns. It'll change our anxiety patterns. And as we'll see in our time together today, it also will come to address some of the addictions that begin to afflict us in our body. And we want to talk about that journey and that relationship of soul and body in particular today. I want to talk about this with my guest, uh, Steve. Uh, I just will say to you, we are new friends. We met just about two months ago now when I was speaking down in Southern California. And I'd seen Steve in kind of the audience as I was speaking. And I don't know if you ever have had this experience. Maybe some of you have where you see someone and they just have a radiance about them. And Steve, you had that for me when I was speaking. You had a radiance, a kind of a hunger. You were receptive to what I was saying. and uh, But I didn't know you, and we never uh, really ran into each other in the dining moments. But I was out hiking with the guy who was leading worship, and we ran into each other at the top of a hill and then became friends. And so it's a real joy to have you here. Steve has written a book that I'm going to show you here entitled Filling the Void, which is really the story of his movement from addiction to freedom. And so that's what we want to talk about today. Steve, what a joy to have you with us. Thank you so much. And I'm so happy and so honored to be with you. And you hit it spot on. I I literally was sitting there and the people we were with, we were drinking up what you were sharing and teaching with us at Forest Home. It was beautiful. And and I was really praising the Lord that, that we ran into you on that hike. And then I was praising him further that I had a moment after one of your teachings to give you a copy of my book and the fact that you dug into it and then we connected just this means the world to me and to me this is Christ's plan and what it's all about and I'm thrilled and and thank you so much for having me sir I really appreciate it. Absolutely it's a privilege. Well I want you to share if you would be willing a little bit of your own story like your descent into addiction and because uh, because I think that forms the basis of everything that we're going to be talking about. So just if you would uh, let our listeners know a little bit about your story. Absolutely. Born and raised in the northern suburbs of Chicago. Folks got divorced very early on in my life. Uh, I was four years old. And then that type of childhood was good breeding ground for who I am made up to be. Uh, My DNA is, you know, I am an addict and an alcoholic. That is who I am. And when I was 15, for the first time I used marijuana, And that immediately fixed something in me that was haunting me and pulling at me my whole life. This emptiness I felt, this void, and that's where I came up with the title for my book, Sir, was Filling the Void. Finally, I felt like the answer was there. And again, I I was always an addict. So the minute I used an addictive substance, I went right into addiction. Hmm. So I used for the first time when I was 15. 
By the time I was 19, I was in inpatient treatment in Wickenburg, Arizona, a place called the Meadows, terrific facility. Mm. And again, I'm, I want to give a very succinct snapshot of this. Had 12 great years of sobriety because I understood who I was from my work at the Meadows. I did not know Jesus. I believed in a power greater than myself. I was born and raised Jewish. I knew nothing about Christ. I knew about Jesus Christ, but I wasn't a believer in Christ and had 12 great years of sobriety. And it's a very unfortunately typical tale of an addict and alcoholic. My life blossomed. The promises which are guaranteed in Alcoholics Anonymous came true. I got away from my program and I relapsed. Hmm. And I had a very, very violent relapse because I suffer from a progressive illness. It was worse than it was before. I was back out there for four and a half years. And then this is what leads me into the moment that's most relevant as we start this day. And as we look at the context of my book, you know, when I was at my very bottom, November 11th, 2004, I was like, this is my last night on earth. I didn't think I would wake up the next morning. I was seizing a lot and I wanted to die. And I woke up the next morning and I could not believe I was alive, spun around on my knees and prayed. And my prayer was simple. If you're not going to let me die, God, give me my life back in sobriety. That was my phase one of my prayer, sir. But my second prayer was really where the miracle happened for me in my life. And I don't have anything I can explain it with more than it's a miracle and a gift and a blessing. I called out to Christ to save me. Hmm. I just uh, told him, getting emotional, but I can't help that. That's part of my life too. Yeah. Um, So grateful. I called out to him to save me and told him, I didn't even know what I was talking about. I said, I will live my life for you if you'll save me. That's really what I said. And I, I was saved. And I stood up. I was filthy. Went right downstairs. Um, I lived on Wilshire Boulevard. There was an AA meeting across the street at a church. It's a group of people in a circle smoking cigarettes. I'm like, those are the alcoholics. <laughs> I went over to them. They looked at me like they should have because I was a mess. I'm like, where's the meeting? They're like, right in there. <laughs> I went in. That was the better part of 16 and a half years ago. And uh, in every facet and every way in my life, you know, I am married to a remarkable lady who's only known me sober. We have two beautiful children. My life and my purpose is for his kingdom. I am grateful beyond words or measure. I don't deserve it, but I'll take it. And uh, my calling's for his kingdom. And then I get to meet people like you and do the work I do. And uh, that, that's my snapshot. I want to, again, make it as succinct as possible, but so grateful and so blessed. Well, thank you. I mean, I have read your book. And again, for our viewers and listeners, I really can't recommend it highly enough because it's succinct and it really ties into some of the stuff that we do in a ministry, uh, Steve, that we have called Ancient Paths, we take people out for uh, a time of 48 to 72 hours in the wilderness for solitude and fasting. And uh, it's in that time uh, where our prayer and hope is that people would meet God and get more deeply grounded in their identity in Christ. And then uh, the second piece of that time outdoors is to do this, what we call soul work. And we encourage people to make what we call a life map where you will take a just a basically an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper draw a line across the middle in kind of a landscape format right and you start thinking prayerfully about your life and things that like good experiences that were above the line and bad experiences that are below the line because those experiences shape us and make us who we are and it's really true that when we come to christ yeah. We are a new creation, right? Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 17 and so. We're new, 
but our souls still has all the marks of our, our life story. Like our life map is still there. You have the same parents uh, after you came to Christ as before. And the way your parents treated you and the way the, the values you learned, all that stuff's deeply imprinted on our personality. And frankly, some pieces of that are in all of our lives in need of redemption. And if we don't redeem those pieces, then there is exactly what you say in the title of your book. There's a void. And then we try and fill the void with things that are super destructive. But one of my favorite quotes in your book is this. You say some people are afraid of their past and others are fixated on their past. And I just want to echo that and thank you for saying that because Mm -hmm. I feel that that's true, particularly among evangelical Christians, right? Uh, within the evangelical Christian community, there's often mm-hmm. a saying, hey, you're a new creation, so forget about the past. You don't need to deal with the past. Today's a new day. Move on. Just appropriate your riches in Christ and get on with it as if the past will magically disappear and no longer inform who you are. And then others, of course, are fixated on and hence defined by their past. So I'm wondering, you know, in your work, in your detox centers, and your work with people who are dealing with addiction, how do you find that balance between being too fixated on the past and ignoring the past? That's a great question. There's two books I love. Boy, I love the Bible, and I do my best to keep growing in that. And and Nicole, my wife, helps me a ton in that. And I love the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there's actually a specific line in the big book. We do not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Mm. Love that line. I don't think it's healthy to harbor regret. Uh, I think it's very dangerous to harbor regret or animosity towards the past. I think that resentment that we carry around, that's the number one offender for people like myself, for people who are suffering or who need or who are in recovery. We often will drink poison and we're going to hope someone else dies from us drinking poison. Mm. That's what resentment does like myself. So I want the past to be really embraced and I want us, and when I say the us, it's really, again, people who suffer from what I suffer from, to be able collectively to not forget our history because then we're destined to repeat it, but to find resolution and peace. And and I found, again, my Lord and Savior is Jesus Christ. It's not perfect. It's not supposed to be. It's never going to be. I fall short every day. Right. And I'm supposed to, and I will. And he forgives me and he died on the cross for me. So I'm good, thanks to him. But I don't have that ongoing animosity and that anger daily. I'm very much at peace with my past. Um, it's very purposeful for the people I can pour into. And it's important too for me as, as much as I can. I have beautiful relationship with my parents. I love my siblings. Yes, I'm from a dysfunctional family. Most of us are. But yeah, and that's not the end of us loving one another and being there with and for one another. We all fall short. So it's a delicate balance. I think the Lord, when the Lord's on your heart and you can live as much in that thought, like what would Christ do? How would Christ handle the things with my past when that can be applied and we can really draw from that well of the past, but not have remorse and not have regret and animosity. I think that's extremely liberating. And one of the things that I hear you saying that's so powerful as it applies to uh, our own transformation is this this need to give both ourselves and people in our lives grace. In other words, I, I have encountered people who are afraid to deal with their family issues because they're afraid that if they really face the pain, the result is going to be bitterness. 
and a broken relationship. But what I hear you saying is, indeed, it doesn't have to be bitterness. We can name dysfunction, name pain, Mm -hmm. and then uh, to use Jesus' language, he taught us to pray this way, right? He said, in teaching us to pray, we're told to Mm -hmm. say to God, God, I ask that you'd forgive us in the same manner in which we forgive others. And so kind of embedded in that, it feels like there's this huge uh, challenge of looking at people who weren't there for us and uh, forgiving them. How do people find the strength to do that work of forgiveness? How did you find the strength to do that work of forgiveness? Again, another great question. And I, I, I could talk all day about grace. Uh, because it, so much was extended to me. I always think about, it's a simple reference, you know, saved a wretch like me. That's right. I love that. Yep. You know, amazing grace, saved a wretch like me. I'm that wretch in that line. And I, I really cannot encourage people enough. First of all, again, where I feel that Christ has really blessed me, what a gift to be able to commit my heart and turn my life and my will over to Jesus is beyond anything measure and the Holy Spirit and the way that feeds my soul, but to also be able to have my life in recovery. There's so many remarkable tools in recovery. And one of the things that they they talk about very often in recovery is the ability to make amends for where we fell short and to make amends without expectations. And also the ability to be able to turn back to people in our life and extend them grace, but without expectations, because we have to own our part in things. That's right. So when I work with others, I really want to focus. Look, I played a part in the things that went on with my family. It didn't just magically happen. It wasn't like I was literally this angel. And then all of a sudden, my family and I had issues. I played a part in it through my conduct and behavior. So I need to own and address my part in it have my side of the street cleared up so I don't have that weight and that shame on me. Yep. Love them and meet them where they are. Yep. Just love them and meet them where they are and be liberated and and let go of that anger. For me, this is for me, but I want this for others. I don't want people to walk around being angry. I don't want people to walk around with regret and animosity and remorse. Those are silent killers and they're particularly harmful for people in recovery. So Christ gave me that grace, forgave me, I need to extend it to others. I'm not perfect. Again, I love that I'm not perfect. I say that all the time. I love that I fall short and I get that grace. I love that my wife gives me grace. I am a lot to deal with. Uh, She's remarkable, but it's through grace that my peace is found. I love that. I want to go back to a statement you said really early on in our interview. Uh, When you say, I'm an addict, I'm an alcoholic, that you're setting yourself apart from other people. And I hear that, but here's my, this is a real question for me. I feel kind of theologically, I wonder if everyone isn't a little bit of an addict in some way. And the reason I say that is because I view so many things, so many dysfunctions as a spectrum, right? So we, we offer a class in the church I lead is called Spiritual Journey. And it's really, it's a 12 step program, essentially. And people mm-hmm. go into that going, yeah, I thought it would sure. be a good, fun class to take, you know. And then they, they discover, oh, 
I self-medicate with um, two guys, Ben and Jerry, you know, and somebody else says, yeah, for me, it was exercise. And for somebody yeah. else, it's uh, Netflix, you know. And so it feels like there's a social acceptability level of various addictions, right? If you're a workaholic, man, in America, you got a job at Wall Street and you pull down six figures, seven figures probably. But then down at the bottom somewhere is, you know, cocaine and alcohol and heroin and that kind of thing. And and we look with disdain at people who are living on the streets. Yeah. And then we, we praise the guy who puts in this 75-hour work week. Can you just uh, give me your response to this mm -hmm. statement? If we're just sitting and have a conversation and I go, well, aren't we all addicts? What would you say? Without any sort of judgment and to make sure that it's coming from a pure place of love and support, my short answer would be yes. Because it's to my reality, it's accurate, sir. Like I hear you talking about the ism. Right. And, you know, alcoholism, drug addiction, and that ism. I, I love when I do, I do group three times a week at our, at our detox center, restore detox centers. I do group three times a week there, which is like the joy of my life. Hmm. And I never want the community. And that's what I refer to our, our patients who are with us. Cause I don't like calling them patients. Right. That doesn't feel good for me. Right. When I'm working with the community, I want them to understand like my stuff. Because, you know, they get a different perception. I come in and like I'm married and it's this treatment center and like I look like it's all together and I'm, I'm a broken, broken man. Yep. And I will often say to them, and this is an answer to your question, sir. I'll be like, you want to see like my addiction? Grab some cake. <laughs> I will show you my addiction. It's easy. Cake triggers me. You want to see my addiction? Watch my patterns with exercise. You want to see my addiction? Watch me with Nordstrom online. <laughs> and I hide packages from my wife. Uh, you will see it. Yep. It's, it's lie, alive and well. So I do see that. And, and I want to share one more thing with you because it's on my heart. I, I have remarkable blessed encounters that I'm very grateful for where people from our community will seek me out and they want to sit or they want to visit or they want to have a session and they'll open up with like, I'm not coming to your treatment center. And I'm like, of course, like, I don't know. I, you want to have coffee. So here we are. And it just, what it turns out is they're having a bad relationship with alcohol. Yes. So they don't consider themselves an alcoholic, nor do I sit there and consider them an alcoholic, but they will share with me, sir, I'm having a bad relationship with alcohol. I'm, I'm drinking more than I was. I'm doing things more than I was. I, I can feel the difference. And, and again, just to pour into the answer, what I'll propose is, will you go with me on a, on a short walk? Will you do 30 days a day at a time where you abstain from alcohol? And then can we meet each week and talk about how that is for you? It blows me away again in answer to your question more directly. Just like week one, the men and women, they come back and they're like, this is incredible. I'm going for walks. I'm hydrating more. It's easier with my kids. It's much easier at home. I'm, I'm, it's different at work. And again, that doesn't mean that I categorize them as an alcoholic. But to answer your question, the ism's alive and well. Yep. And the enemy is going to take any opportunity to destroy what? Families, the church life, community. Gambling, sex, shopping, food, it's all coming. So yes is my answer, but but with an asterisk so that it's done with just love, support, nurturement, and empathy. Totally get it. I mean, this is when Jesus said in John 8, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then he goes on and says in John 8, if the son will make you free, you will be free indeed. That modifier indeed mm. is hugely significant in my opinion, because what it's saying is, You'll be free from everything. In other words, there won't be anything in your life that you can't walk away from, whether it's cake or Amazon 
or in my case, uh, fresh powder on the hillside, and and I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to be studying, and I got two meetings planned, and and the the snow is calling like a siren, you know, like a, like a like a seductress, uh, like. How can we find real freedom so that we're able to live the life that God intends? And I think that's a journey for all of us. And this is why I, I would say that this book that you've written isn't just for people who would self-identify as having the ism, but for everybody, because what we're looking for is free indeed, in a sense. Some, one person goes out to coffee with you and says, hey, I've, I've got a... I want to change my relationship with alcohol. And another person, you... <laughs> You wake up after a night where you thought you'd OD'd and were going to die. So some people will mm -hmm. self-intervene and look for help sooner than other people. And I'm just curious if you've ever pondered, you know, yes. why is it that some people have to hit the bottom and other people are willing to seek help at a different level? What prevents people from intervening earlier? I, I apologize that I'm repetitive in this one form. I keep complimenting your questions, but <laughs> doesn't surprise me. Hold you in high regard. I love your work. So again, great question. Thanks. And, and this hits home. And this is sort of the closest part of my life. I'm, I'm not a clinically based guy. I'm a recovery based guy and I'm a Jesus based guy. But this part falls into that realm a little more for me because this is the part where I look at what I suffer from truly as a disease. And, and I do. Um, people who have kidney failure and need dialysis, they must have dialysis. Right. People who are certain types of diabetics must have insulin. People like myself, I don't have a middle ground. There was no way for me to have a self-intervention. Mm. I did have to catapult, not just once, twice right. to this horrific bottom. Yep. And that is where the road just completely splits because that person who can come to me and has an idea that there's unmanageability coming up and they don't like the way it feels and they're not going to go for treatment, but they want to look at the dynamic and potentially look at a shift. That's different than someone like myself, where if, you know, by the grace of God today, right now at this moment, I do this a lot, 10.51 AM, I am clean and sober. I've got coffee to my left, you in front of me, Christ by my side, I'm safe. If I go and have a glass of wine, if I take a pill, I will disappear, mm -hmm. literally. And I will ruin everything and destroy everything in my life. There's no middle ground. Whereas a person who doesn't suffer from what I suffer from, they can have a night where maybe they have two more glasses of wine than they should have. They wake up feeling terrible. And three weeks later, they don't go back towards another drink. Yes. That is just hammers and bananas. Those yep. are two totally different things. Yep. And so that is to me the difference between an addict and an alcoholic, which is who I am and what I am and what the Lord made me to be and someone who's got some different particular dynamics to look at regarding different things. Yeah, really good. Really good word. The way I use it in my own layman's terms is uh, there are certain people with certain things they where there's just no off switch. And if you don't have the off switch, then until you kind of existentially bottom out, you can't turn it off. You, you can't. You may, you may even want to, but you can't. And that's, that's what you're yep. talking about, it seems to me. So you have this initial uh, recovery, naming of addiction, then this 12-year period of kind of economic success. And to quote you in your book, you know, you had outwardly had everything. You know, if somebody looked at you, you've got the, you've got the, you've got the LA lifestyle. You're, 
you're the embodiment of Los Angeles, you know, yep. and, and, and yet you crash again. Yeah. And then in that second crash, Christ plays a role in your freedom. So I'm wondering, even in your, in your detox centers, Stephen, and as you approach this in your work with other people, what role do you tell people that Christ has to play in finding freedom from addiction? So Restore Detox Centers is a non-denominational treatment center. And that was intentional because I wasn't going to lose anybody nor the ability to treat anyone because they decided they were going to have a problem with this being a Christian-based or a Christ-based treatment center. But make no mistake about it, when they cross that threshold and they come in and they start processing, doing group, working with my lead clinician, and then they get a very large dose of me, there's no mystery to any of this. All I talk about is Jesus. In my groups, I talk to constantly speak about that I was saved by Christ. They know my story. Most everyone in the community is given one of my books and some choose to read it, some don't, and that's fine. Uh, I very much also believe in the approach of came, came to, came to belief. I mm. love that. Yep. I just think the fact that the body shows up and we can get them safe and stabilized and then they can start to have some awareness. And then I'm big on proof of concept. They see Christ's impact in my story, in my life. And I share with them, you know, my Lord and Savior is Jesus Christ. My power greater than myself is Jesus Christ. Wherever you are, I will meet you there, but I want you to know what works for me. So I'm okay with any power greater than themselves because what they've done to themselves is what I did to myself. It's just, unfortunately, it's just very harrowing and we're busy trying to kill ourselves all the time. And then do I want and hope that they will find the Lord? Absolutely. Do I profess the remarkable grace in his glory and that he saved me nonstop? Uh, And I know Christ will do his part and I'll continue to just show them the water and live through attraction, not promotion, and just keep sharing it with them. So I have to blend the message like that. And I find it goes over well. And I also find that I don't lose the attachment or the symmetry with anyone I have right now a lady who I adore who's with us, who she's like, I'm an atheist. I'm like, great, I'm not. And I love you more for sharing that with me. She's doing incredible work. She's met Nicole and Nicole's a very godly woman. And we're pouring into her and I can see like the lights going on for her and her seeing it and her coming to and coming towards belief. And that's really all I want. I want people to be safe. I want them to know that they can be saved. Uh, I want them to know that it's about the kingdom. And I I have miracles in my life every day. This is one right now, and it's because of Jesus. Well, and the the framework uh, that I put your response in uh, in my own work is we want people to be able to belong before they believe. In other words, we we say, hey, here's this high bar you have to attain to before you can believe. Uh, So clean up your act and then jump through these hoops and then come. You know, there's a guy in our congregation who is, like yourself, uh, Jewish by roots, and uh, he had cancer. And in in his cancer, mm. he just started showing up for, to church in hopes that a God that he didn't even know he believed in would heal him. He was healed. And I will never forget this guy who, I mean, if you sat down and had a conversation with him about ethics, he didn't have it all together. We'll just say it that way, right? But he was falling in love with Jesus, Mm -hmm. period. 
And so I'll never forget a Good Friday. It's probably been 10 years ago now. We're doing a Good Friday service, and it was a come forward for communion, you know. And I always invite everybody to the table because I, because Jesus invited Judas. So every, I said, hey, everybody's invited to the table. Uh, as If you want Christ, come. If you don't want Christ, don't come. But if you want Christ, this table's for you. He comes forward, and I'm sitting, mm-hmm. uh, and people are in line, and you can kind of picture it. They're in line in the, uh, in the sanctuary in a row waiting to get their bread and their cup, you know, and I'm just sitting. And he comes and he throws his arms around me, and he goes, this is a moment. I'm going to receive Christ. And then he goes and he takes the bread and he hmm. takes the cup. And I tell you, this man's life is um, radiant because, I, you know, Christ is, Christ is in him. But if we would have said on the front end, you know, this is not a place for you, in any way at all, then he, he'd, he'd move on in search of answers. So belong before you believe is exactly what you're doing, and I couldn't, I couldn't affirm it more. Hey, last question. Uh, you know, there are, there are some Christians that, in my opinion, are really struggling in exactly what we're talking about right now. You meet Christians, and you say, how's it going? And then sometimes you hear things not I'm caricaturing a little bit, but you hear, oh, you know, God is always good all the time and praise the Lord. And they're, they're like, you never get a hint that under the veneer of spiritual slogans, they're dealing with anything, you know? And I wonder what you would say to believers who are carrying stuff. I'm of the opinion, Steve, that the church at large, as evangelicals, we, we talk a good game when it comes to grace, but in reality, Brene Brown does a better job of calling people to authenticity and vulnerability than the church does. Because, because we men are afraid that if anyone knew, if, if anyone in church read our browser history, we'd be fired or we wouldn't be welcome or we'd be dismembered or something like that. And so for people who are carrying stuff and afraid to come clean because they're afraid of what their faith community will do, what would you say to them? That, that, that takes me to so many places and it makes me feel emotional and it makes me feel a lot of things. And it makes me grateful too, because I, I need to keep owning and I do often own, I daily own where I fall short. I need to, I must, because I think the facade around the work that the Lord blesses me with can be like, oh, you know, so together. And it's like, I need people to understand my humanness and how fallen and broken I am. And I also am very blessed, you know, the pastor from our church who I adore, uh, we go to daybreak, our pastor is Jason Graves. He's remarkable. It would be so cool to see you two meet. I think you guys would just hit it off famously. Uh, he's, he's like you. He's just this incredible guy. And he's like, you know, like he's, he literally says, we're all like jacked in here. Yep, that's right. If you know what was going on to the left of you and to the right of you, I mean, we've all got, we've all got our things going on. And it's so accurate. And what I'd say to anyone who's like, carrying it around and like has this facade and, and it's all together and there's nothing authentically coming. Like a, that is a volcano in waiting. That is a VIW. Yep. You are going to have an eruption. There is going to be a consequence. There is going to be fallout. I think that's why people get sick. Yes. They're suppressing things and they're holding on to things and they're hurting and they're angry. And it's like, they haven't cried. They haven't let go. They haven't been vulnerable. They haven't turned for any help. And I would just like prayerfully, and hopefully say like, don't like, please, my gosh, it's hard enough. Yep. Let go of your burden, like turn to your brothers and sisters 
or to your pastor or to a professional or someone and get real and be liberated. And, and number one, I love hitting my knees. I love being on my knees. That again, that's a recovery thing too. Yep. Humble yourself. Even before I knew the Lord, I knew to pray on my knees because I humbled myself to God, to yep. my higher power. Yep. And I'd say if there's, there's believers like my brethren, if they're suffering and they're holding on to things, get on your knees. And like, he's, he's waiting for us. That's right. He was waiting for me my whole life. Yep. Like who was I, I was in this filthy, empty one bedroom apartment. And I'm like, save me. I need you. I'll live for you. And he's like, sure. <laughs> like immediate answer to prayer, That's like immediately, yeah. you know, lifted me up. So like, can't, can't we all turn to him in all things and turn it over to him and be like, relieve me of this burden. I don't know what to do. Help me with my pain. And then forge ahead and be brave and be vulnerable and let it go. That's like, I could, you hit my passionate part of my button. So don't hang on to it. Don't suppress it. Find the help and pray to our Heavenly Father. And there is liberation waiting. That's beautiful, man. It comes down a little bit to our view of God. And if God is a good God, then we can run to God with confidence knowing that God will wrap us in these loving arms and bring the healing we need. You know, we were doing a thing last night on Zoom, uh, a class, and uh, I was leading people in a meditation, Christ above me, Christ beneath me, Christ around me, Christ within me. And then when we shared afterwards, uh, how was that for you? This one girl so sweetly, you know, she said, I just pictured Jesus washing my face and putting you know, oil in my hair and hugging me and putting on my wedding dress. And I was, I just was, I just felt washed and cleansed. And I thought, man, if I could capture that and let everyone experience that, it would be a different world we live in. If we know that God is that approachable and believe it and allow ourselves to be ravished by that unconditional love, uh, healing happens and freedom happens. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're embodying that my friend. So so much. Again, for everybody who's watching, listening, uh, the book is Filling the Void by Stephen Ginsburg. I'm sure it's available on Amazon or something like that if you want it. But uh, I would really encourage everybody to read it, particularly if you're interested in the story work that uh, we teach at the church that I lead. His book would help you there. But for everyone, uh, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time today to be with us. And I will continue to watch with interest the, the work that you do because... I know that the need is only growing for people to find freedom because the the slaveries that are putting people in chains these days are immense. It's all around us. So thanks for the work that you're doing. Thank, thank you for having me again. I, I love and respect and appreciate your work. And I just want to say one last thing, sir, just very quickly. If there is anyone out there who is suffering in any way, shape or form, and there is anything I can do and that has no expectations behind it, very easy to find me uh, through stephentginsburg.com. Literally, that'll give you an email contact to me. Anyone who emails me with a question, a concern, I need help, I want to talk to someone, you will hear from me. It'll be between us. But please know that there is someone here for you. I serve a great God who's here for us all. But I'd just be remiss in not putting that out there for the men and women who are still suffering out there, sir. And thank you, Stephen. And we'll put that uh, that email in the in the notes as well so that people can follow up. But this has been the Toward Wholeness Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. And we'll look forward to being together again soon. Bye-bye.